You're watching Behind the Screens. Grab some popcorn, fill up a drink, and take a seat. Our feature presentation is about to begin. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time zone you may be listening. Welcome back to another brand new episode of Behind the Screens. I'm Chris Chason, and joined as always is my co-host and best friend, Mike Lickowed. Mike, how are you doing tonight, my friend? I'm doing very well today, Chris. Really happy to be back here for another television segment of Behind the Screens, where we journey back to the world of Revenant for the back half of Ruby Season 4. Yeah, so uh, the first half left off with a pretty good, interesting cliffhanger, right? It really did, with an excellent epic entrance by Uncle Crow as our heroes seem trapped in an abandoned city with a crazy scorpion psychopath. How were things going to continue with all the story segments that had come up to this point? Eh, with, who knows? With Yang's on, on with Yang's on again, off again, PTSD and fatherly advice talks. With you know Blake going back to her family and menagerie accompanied by son and tactically fighting the White Fang. And of course Weiss standing up for what is right against her father and the evil aristocrats of Atlas. Uh, so yeah, you can't go wrong with that. Where will it all go? Let us dive immediately right back into it, my friends. Grab a snack and grab a drink if you don't have one already. This is episode 7 of Ruby Season 4, Punished. Mm. So basically, the episode opens up with Oscar. We, you know, we finally go back to his story after, About being, time. after being away for it for so long. Because remember, mm. he's a very important character, guys. Yeah. Um, He's basically on his bed reading a book until his aunt, who we never see physically, actually, calls him down to eat dinner. However, just before he goes, Osbin's voice comes back and he can hear him in his ear. Oscar argues with the Osbin force ghost about his situation and then, of course, tries to rationalize why he's hearing voices in his head, basically thinking that he's about to lose his mind. But, of course, Osbin tells him that he's perfectly sane, if not the situation is a bit unorthodox. Osmond continues to talk about how Oscar and his souls are now forever linked, and the importance of getting to Haven Academy as fast as possible. So, uh, apparently, Ospin's spirit possessed Oscar? Yeah, so basically, y'all, remember way back in episode 2 when Blake was reading a book about a man with two souls forever fighting over control of one body? Yeah, it actually came back into play later. I mean, if the maidens came true, this is nothing new then. Yep, the story then cuts back to the to the Schnee Manor long after the party is over. Jacques is now scolding Weiss for her behavior at the charity event. Weiss tells him that she wants to leave Atlas, that she doesn't feel safe and happy in her home anymore. But of course she is very coldly denied by this. Yeah, this, of course. This basic right. Jacques then accuses her of besmirching the family name with her eccentric ideas about freedom and fighting for what is right. Bitch, you did that yourself! God, this guy is an asshole. Like, I mean, every... Like, I could tell why she never wanted to talk about him before. Oh, yeah. Everything bad about Jacques Schnee is accented right in this one scene. Let me tell you, because even though he's a really terrible character and I... I, I don't love to hate him. I just I just downright hate him. This yeah. is this is probably his best acted scene. Right yeah, here. Yes. Yes. Again, there's when it comes to villains or at least evil people, you love to hate them. 
But there are some where you just cannot stand for the life of you. You wish yeah. they were like written better to make better villains. Exactly. Jock Schnee is not one of those. But, well, okay, season four, he's probably his best written, but you know he's he's still evil for evil's sake. Yeah. And it, like it, it like wasn't until later down the line when I actually genuinely started to hate. Oh, him. of course, of course. But still, you, you, this it, it, it's it peaked there, but then just. Slowly went, went down. That's yeah. uh, that's about to jump the shark. Basically, basically, her response to the family name being more hers than his. Since remember, he married into the family. He's not a real Schnee. And to this, he hits her across the face. Wait, I, I thought. Wait, hell no, hold on. That makes no sense, though. Well, no, because her because her mother is the official Schnee. Aired down. He married her mother. Took took the name and is now the patriarch of the family. Isn't it usually the other way around? Mm, I don't know. I'm I'm not too I'm, I'm I'm not too big into royal families, but of course, you know, the man is always looked at as the powerhouse and he took the name of Schnee to basically get ahead in the world of Atlas. Okay, just, fine. Of course, after, you know, this really casual display of domestic abuse, it's yeah. honestly <laughs> it's honestly one of the only times such things are shown in the series and it hit me hard. The first time I saw this scene, yeah, very much. Me so. too. Like I remember, like I felt it. Like I heard, I I heard the sound of him hit of Jacques hitting Weiss, and I I just felt oh, like I felt it exactly. Yeah, and so before good. we go on, we must note this: we do not condone abuse in any way imaginable. Know no, that definitely, you could definitely not. Even though it may play up into the into the tone and the mood of the entirety of the scene, it is not a good thing. And if you do know someone who is suffering under this, please tell them to get help or get help for them, please. Yep, um, and uh, maybe point them to us because we know how to help people. Possibly. Okay, so after they furthermore daddy-daughter arguing, mm. Weiss uh, argues that he can't just keep her under house arrest the rest of her life. People are going to be asking where the heiress of the Schnee Dust Company is at, and then he disowns her inheritance and names Whitley the sole heir to his fortune. Uh, so it's like every single thing she ever was has now been stripped away from her. She, for a dude. And uh, basically, that's it. He then grounds her because she is a because you are a child, and that is what happens when children misbehave. She's eighteen. Yeah. <laughs> so technically, you can't do this. Exactly. And of course, Weiss, Weiss then confronts Whitley outside. Side because you know when the season started they seemed to be on not the best terms yeah because Whitley is a d yep he's completely smug about the whole situation because he knew exactly that this would happen and was leading her on the entire time and it's at this moment where we get the most douchey expression of Whitley one of them anyway mm -hmm. It is bad to do, to not do as father asks. And that like, slimy ass cheek. Yeah, exactly. I remember the look on your face. Be like, I hate this character so much. <sighs> he's like he, again, like I mentioned in last in last episode, we covered this. He's basically Ruby's equivalent to King Joffrey from Game of Thrones. Very, very much so. Weiss then goes crying into her room. Weiss pushes her furnitures aside to make some space to train with her weapon. She's not going to be just an heiress anymore. She's getting back to what made her awesome in the first place oh being yeah a badass fighter mm -hmm. then of course we cut back to the abandoned village uh where, where crow has just blocked Tyrion's strike from ruby during with his stinger after of course realizing that Tyrion is working for salem 
Who? Kroll then enters a fight, instructing the characters to stay back after Ruby and Ren are easily knocked aside. Ruby perches atop a nearby building in an attempt to shoot Tyrion with the sniper function of, of her weapon. Oh yeah, it's also a gun. I keep forgetting that. Yeah. And of course, um, basically, it's really hard for her to shoot him because the two of them are so fast, she can't get a very clear shot. The whole fight bounces up all over the village, and it's honestly a really epic battle. Of course, it has some weird cliche moments there, like when Crow's weapon gets knocked away, Tyrion doesn't immediately strike, but Crow casually walks over to where his, his weapon landed. He pulls it out the wall and then just keeps fighting. Yeah. But I have to say, the theme music of this fight... Epic. Bad Luck Charm is easily one of the best uh, character themes of the entire show. It capsulizes Crow's character perfectly. Boom. Believe me, I'm a Bad Luck Charm. And it'll come into play later when we talk oh, about Crow's yeah. powers. Oh, Let yeah. me tell you. And of course, even though Ruby was told to stay back, this is her fight too, and she joins her uncle to try to stop Tyrion. And, and uh, the fight is pretty cool. It really is. Even though it's nowhere near as good as the first few seasons fights, you can tell they were trying to develop a new thing because, you know, Monty wasn't the choreographer anymore. So, yeah. so they had to uh, find out a new thing. You know, they had to find a new way to show the fights, and it's it's fine. Yeah, it's, they're trying to make it flashy, and it yeah, works to a pace, degree, but, you know, it's not perfect. It, it, it really does take a lot out of it. The two is against one as Ruby stays out of the fight. Ren holds Jean back from re-entering. Crow manages to get Ruby away from the fight, but as he does so, he's so distracted, Tyrion manages to pierce him with his tail. Oh, yeah. And, of course, to respond, Ruby quickly slices off off Tyrion's tail with her scythe gun. It is so awesome. I was like, holy crap, you... And yes, Tyrion does swear outright. This is no longer a PG series anymore. This is PG-13, mother... It really is. Uh, after, of course, everything has gone down, he caused him to lose his composure and runs away. Everybody now, uh, along with Crow, uh, question exactly why Tyrion is coming after him and everything. But, of course, they just bombard him with all the questions all at once. What does Crow have to say? What's your favorite fairy tale? And the episode just ends. I really liked this one. Yeah, this was honestly one of the cooler episodes of, of Volume 4. It really definitely is. The combination of the Weiss and Ruby plot lines basically gives us closure to one thing while making setup for the rest of the season with Weiss, while also showing an amazing fight scene between Clo I mean, Crow and, Cl and, uh, Crow and Tyrion, setting up their rivalry for the rest of the series. Oh, yeah. And trust me, that's a thing that's going to be on again, off again for a long time, yep. my friends. So I'll definitely say that it was definitely a standout. For so, you know, personally, I loved the emotional beats of this episode. The tension that's in the conversation of Weiss and her father still ranks as one of my most favorite Weiss moments of all time because this was the moment that birthed her into becoming a fully independent warrior. Oh, and yeah. I love it ever since then. And this episode really shown as being my well, the, the big start of where I was really liking Crow. Like, I loved him in season three, too. Don't get me wrong. But it wasn't until this episode and seeing him fight an opponent this long that really pushed me all the way to the top so i'll hands down have to give this episode punished a b plus letter ranking yeah honestly this episode like was really like honestly i'm backpedaling what mike said like good and good sort like the some of the writing is pretty good the, the fights the main fight scene between crow and Tyrion was great yes. ruby tagging in and the fact that this is like really a transition from a light more lighthearted story to an overall darker story really this is. is like a good setting off point to prove that 
they're not joking around anymore. This is going to be serious. Exactly. And the ending stinger makes you think you got to watch the next episode. I know. Now, to be fair though, like you said, like the animation, like the animation is better. But and again, the fighting it's not as great as before. No. It's it's fine. I kind of wish it was a little bit longer, yeah. but I still think this is one of the better episodes of season four. So Absolutely. with that, I'll give it around an eight and a half out of ten. Solid, my friend. Let us now jump into episode eight, a much-needed talk, mm. or as I like to call, the massive exposition dump episode. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Typical animes usually have that, so uh, be forewarned. The episode opens up with all the characters of Team Ranger and Crow, who is now as a bandage around his waist because of the mark, sitting around a campfire. They have just been briefed by Crow about the nature of the Maidens, basically giving them an abridged version of the speech that Osmond and Pyrrha had last season, basically telling them, yep, magic is real, and there's a bunch of villains trying to kill us. Yeah, and in one part of the episode, John is pissed, think it's like, so you set up Pyrrha knowing that she was going to die. Well, no, you know, they didn't know. They oh, just no. Well, well, I mean, there was a chance. They thrusted her into a very dangerous situation right. without fully knowing the consequences. Yeah, but there's a little bit more here besides the Maidens. Yep. Uh, they try to comprehend all this stuff. Jean is so angry at all of this. Aren't we all? And, of course, uh, realization that they tried to force Pyrrha to become a Maiden. They did. It was slimy. And they knew it was wrong, but there was no other way. It was the only choice they had. That's what made the story intense, because they had no other choice. Yeah, when you're put in a situation where there's only one logical way to get out of the situation, and you can't do anything else about it or can't change it in any way, you know it's dire. I love how Crow immediately snaps back at John, saying that, you know, they may have been a bit pushy, yes, but because things were on the line and they could have lost, which they sort of did. Not going to lie. Yeah, but, I guess. But in the end, it was her choice to follow Osmond back into the vault. It, yeah. was, it, was, it was her choice. He didn't need to follow her and risk his life, but he still did it anyway. Yeah, and, Crow, and with Crow saying that, that just shut John up. Yeah, of course. And then the topic is seemingly dropped. Ruby decides to ask Crow a bunch of questions about why Tyrion was after her, which of course escalates into Jean asking how that was connected to the attack on Beacon and everything else, because... Okay, guys, let me just reiterate for you guys a massive criticism I have with all of my friends about Ruby. It takes 41 episodes for the actual plot to get started. Because when you actually look at the first three seasons, not a whole lot of plot-relevant stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, we get world-building, but not really a lot of world-building. No, it's... We get, like, lower level. Starting with this episode... We get regular world yeah, building. Yeah, basically they dump everything on you at once instead of sprinkling it. You get the whole cake yeah. in your mouth at once. Yeah, and you try to eat it too, but then you start choking on it by so much plot dump. Like, stop! 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 Exactly. I just want to enjoy it! Stop! And, and mind you, remember, this isn't nearly all of the lore. Because remember, there's still another hour's worth of World of Remnant videos you got to watch on YouTube to get the full brunt of the World of Remnant. Exactly! They never explain any of it in the actual show, and I just don't like that. It's because weird. You shouldn't have to do an hour's worth of homework to understand a show that's already 12, 15 yeah, plus it's hours like, long. It's like, with, it's like with a new movie, you have to either you have to watch something else to understand it, or you have to read a specific read specific supplementary material. Exactly. It's like, take a, take a Injustice Gods Among Us, for example. It's exactly. a video game, but then it transitioned into this whole comic book series that set, that set up how Superman became an evil dictator. Exactly. Now, granted, it is an awesome comic book story, but still! You have to read all of that to understand 
understand a very simple story that happens in an Elseworld universe. Yeah, or watch, the, or watch full story videos on YouTube. Then, of course, uh, basically, sighs, and Crow tells an... But basically, with, with, with a heavy sigh, Crow eventually laments and decides to tell an ancient tale about one of Remnant's religions. I guess that's what happened, because I didn't get a religious thing. Basically, yeah. b- basically, Crow said that people are not really religious these days, which is kind of true. I you guess. Know, people are not nearly as butthurt about religion as they used to be back in the 50s and 60s. But of course, uh, according to what Osmond told him, remember he's getting this information straight from the white, from the white hair's mouth. Yeah. Uh, there was there was once two brothers at the very start of time. During during the day, the older brother created life, and then and then at night, the younger brother created death. the The younger brother's action proved ineffective at first, though. Uh, in time, the younger brother, the god of death, and the older brother is the god of light, the god of death created the creatures of Grimm, which is where they all sprouted from. They're basically parts of the uh, hand of destruction and chaos himself. Yep. Which, of course, makes sense. Yeah. Um, the two brothers eventually decided to make peace with one creation, humanity. And that's that's actually really cool. I mean, even though it's not really complex, you know, because everybody has a spirit of good and evil within them always. Oh, yeah, totally. But, you know, it's very profound. It's yeah, very it's honestly profound. the best way to explain how humanity in this world came to be a little bit different to ours. Basically, they could choose between good and evil, and this show, with as many characters as it does, definitely proves how, many diff- how different people are from each other. The human race was then bestowed four gifts, which, of course, people would think are just virtues, but they're actually real living like like real objects representing these things yep. including knowledge choice creation and destruction yeah the four fundamentals of this world turn into physical objects mm-hmm. exactly yeah, so basically, these concepts right here, I didn't really understand it at first, but then, of course, they showed the animated di- um, diagrams, and then everything started to fall into place. Yeah, it seemed like, it would, when you get it, like, if you, like, telling it is one thing, but showing it visually, it helps a lot. Yeah, the animation was honestly really good during this, showing the physical manifestations of the artifacts as well as the gods themselves. Yeah. Uh, basically, they were not given metaphorically, they were bestowed in the uh, shape of four relics, a lamp, a staff, a sword, and a crown, which I think is pretty cool, not going to lie. I love these kinds of shows where characters need to go after specific MacGuffin items. Yeah, we won't know. We, we're we not going to go into detail what these relics look like, well, which one is which. We'll get that later. Yes, but for now, will. let's just say uh, you might have a good idea on one of them. Yep. Each of the four Huntsman Academies were tasked with keeping safe one of the four power relics, and Salem's ultimate goal is to possess all of them for nefarious reasons that are not explained at the moment. So, basically, in response to the MCU with Thanos getting the Infinity Stones. <laughs> no, basically, it's kind of a lower-level thing of that. You know, the the villain wants to collect items to gain ultimate power. The heroes must get them first. It's a cartoon story as old as time. That's, I, I guess, yeah. Yep, and of course, that's basically... So, it's where we learned that, okay, the schools are basically the strongholds to hold the vaults which hold the relics. And that's, and that's why we need to go to Haven Academy to get the first relic before Salem's forces get there first. Right. Okay, so meanwhile, we then we then cut back to Blake's story of all things. Blake can be seen on a balcony outside of her father's office before being approached by her mother carrying a set of tea. Her mother picks up on the fact that Blake is a little bit nervous to talk to her dad about how awkward it was that she you know, ran away with a psycho boyfriend or whatever and, of course, joined a militia terrorist group. But I'm sure it's all going to be fine. And, of course, the, the adorable moments 
This episode really showed just how great Blake's parents are. Kali is hilariously funny, mm-hmm. and I love all her scenes. Her mother gives her the tea set, and then you know, gives her the tray, going back to listen to Sun, because he's telling stories about Team Ruby. Yeah. I would, I would, I'd honestly like to feel like, so he's telling her the stories that, you know, we never saw because there were so many time skips. Yeah. In, in, in this darn thing, that her, that, her, that her daughter would most likely have not talked about as much, but Sun loves to run his mouth. Yeah. Uh, so much fun. Blake, Blake d- d- does manage to muster up the courage, and then manages to go into her father's study, which is a really beautifully made, you know, Asian study style study. Absolutely. And it has the nice wallpaper and the books and, you know, the paintings and everything. It looks so peaceful. Yeah. I would love an office like that. Oh, somewhere. yeah. Uh, during which they share several moments of really awkward small talk. I kind of would like to imagine maybe this is how Erin is, is with her actual parents. Which oh I think is, it would be so funny, honestly. Um, her parents, basically, she then reveals um, the reason why she's so nervous. When her parents decided to leave the White Fang, she called them cowards, among other things, and stayed with the faction, despite the fact that her parents could sense that things were going to go wrong with the White Fang after you know her father was no longer the founder of it. Um, her father comforts his daughter, reassuring that everything is fine and neither him nor her mother ever held it against her for making these choices. And he's so proud of her for showing strength and not going down the wrong path, for not becoming the villain that so many of the other White Fang members had had become. It really is nice, honestly. (laughs) Thinking about it, can you tell that Blake is like one of those girls that just does not want to say a thing to her parents or doesn't want yeah. to associate herself with them. And I love the in the small-time interaction between them. I mean, yeah, you know, people could say it's boring, it's slow, we've seen it a million times. Yeah, but, but come on. It's, I'm very sentimental about it. What can I do? It simply cannot be helped. Yeah, and exactly. Of, and of course, saying such good things, but then my man's son crashes through the darn door after they had a nice father-daughter talk, and then, you know, Blake is clearly mad about him for this. What does the man have to say? A genius response back? What? This isn't the bathroom? <laughs> like, are we in a sitcom now? Is that what this show is devolved into? I, 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 I'm guessing. Oh my goodness. And of course we go back to Crow and the kids around the campfire again. Expresses uncertainty at the things that they were told. Basically, Ruby and everybody is very confused on what to do next. Deciding that after some advice from Crow, the best course is still to keep going to Haven Academy because they have to inform everybody of what's happened and to begin to make sure that the relic there is kept safe. Yeah. Ruby now asks, asks Crow one final question. Why did he follow them instead of just joining them when they first started? Who, whoever knows how long they, they've been walking at this point. I know. After some pushing for an answer by Ruby and Nora, Crow reveals why he couldn't go and it's because of his superpower. And when I first heard Crow's superpower, I was, uh, yikes. So let me tell you. Yeah, this, uh, honestly, Crow's semblance is the stupidest. You you think it's stupid? Yeah. Really? Oh, man. Just explain it. So basically, the Crows are a sign of bad luck. And since he's named Crow, you know, basically his superpower is always being misfortunate. His superpower is having constant bad luck. 
And of course, it endangers those around him, which is why he's a lone wolf and always does things by himself. And this... Yeah, it's like Batman taken to the nth degree. It really is, though. That's why I, I like go jokingly say, oh yeah, he's definitely the Batman of this world, and Tyrion's like mixing Carnage with the Joker. Oh, yeah. Which, which is so funny, I swear to God. Uh, he then, of course, walks away from the group, ending the long discussion very broodingness and whatnot, but not before noticing a raven landing on the tree above him. There's nothing else to discuss about that. This, this yeah, for probably, now. It probably means absolutely nothing. But I do like the fact that Ruby says before the conversation ends how even though she's terrified of all these new revelations, she's still going to do everything she can to sell, you know, help and save the world. Right. Which I love that. It really shows her as a as a definitely a protagonist type. Not, not a very complex one, but still in a, a protagonist oh, type. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now this is a bit that's infamous. And, you know, a moment that many have said how, you know, some were very unhappy with the way the exposition was given during Crow's story time by the fire. The other half came from what Blake did to Sun after he crashed through the door. Oh, Bla boy. Blake hits him across the face several times and blames him for always getting into her business when it really is none of his stuff that he needs to worry about. And of course, uh, invasion of privacy, interrupting a tender moment with her father. He tries several times to warn her that you know he saw a, a masked white figure in the market today. After his, after her, you know, her mother said that they're not supposed to be wearing their masks on the island. But of course, he saw one in the market. But Blake does not want any of this nonsense. She's here to see her family and do nothing else. Um, just a mental relaxation day. And of course, Sun tries to show her a photo on his phone. And she throws the phone into the forest. So it'd be like, yeah, and, and, and then it's be like, hey, I got two payments left on that thing. Exactly. But then, of course, if she didn't throw throw the, throw the phone into the forest, they never would have noticed that someone was spying on them from inside the trees. Yeah. And of course, they they then uh, basically notice that there's like a female ninja or something poking through the the uh, trees right there. And of course, Blake gives chase afterwards. Her mother comes upstairs, and Son gives probably well, you know, Michael probably probably gives one of his best line reads as Son ever. The White Fang is evil. I totally called it, and I'm bringing your daughter back. Woo! Oh uh, <laughs> boy, I bet, I bet that was a laugh in the recording. But uh, you know what? Also, I think uh, my, I think Michael probably improvised that. Oh, uh, I would love it if he did, honestly, because Michael Jones, even though he didn't, you know, he's not really an actor. Actor. I have seen some of his anime portrayals of stuff that he did outside of Rooster Teeth, yeah. and he does a good stuff. He tries. It's stuff like your know, fairy tale and whatnot. He's at least trying, and that's what's important. The episode ends with Team Ranger waking up out, um, after the campfire has died down. Ruby goes over to Crow and, and you know, notices that his wound is now pussing over you know, purple ooze or whatnot. Yeah, so it's, made, it's gross. It's made very apparent that you know, uh, Tyrion poisoned Crow and uh, they're kind of screwed because they're hundreds of miles away from the, from, from the nearest hospital. And of course, Crow's amazing epic line to end the episode, well, that's unfortunate. Get it? B bad luck. This is yeah. Uh, this uh. episode was pretty good, but probably not as good as it probably could have been. Cause you know, as you know, as we said, they have to get a bunch of exposition out right here because 
Well, they didn't do that for the for the other three seasons, and you know, by the time they tried to get the plot started in season three, but the tournament, man, the tournament was most important, I guess. <laughs> Who cares about a freaking tournament? Exactly. This is, exactly. Look, this is Ruby, not Dragon Ball. So then, would you agree that the tournament fights are probably the thing that was distracting us from the actual interesting stuff that was going on? No, no, I think about it. Sometimes, Maybe. yeah. Maybe. Right? So then, basically, okay, I've heard of many other criticisms saying that, okay, the, the tournament fights were pointless because most tournaments in anime are pointless. Oh, of course. But, but, but then, of course, that is besides the point. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty about this. Miles Luna, a.k.a. Jean's actor and writer and director of the series, stated that the whole campfire scene in, in, in this episode was probably, let me tell you this, Basically, the whole campfire scene was one of the most difficult things to write in the whole season because of how much they had to cover. Really? Gee, I wonder why. Well, yeah. actually, when you think about it, yeah. I wonder why. Maybe it's because you shoved all your plot into season four of your eight to eight, soon to be nine episode, like nine season series. Or I mean, I guess it's a good in a meta sense. It's a story around a campfire. Yeah, but, I know. You know. Carrie Shukross, Neptune's actor, director, and writer, said that more people worked on that scene than any other in the entire season. Really? Yeah, the campfire scene was the most thing focused on this season with the crew. Oh, it's not to mention the fact that it had a lot to animate, too. So Okay, so this is a thing right here. So, Miles wrote the majority of Blake's scenes in the season. That was all oh. his doing right there, and it shows. It really... So, basically, okay, I'm not going to argue that Miles does not know how these characters should act and talk, because he does. He made most of them. Oh, but, yeah. But it's like, sometimes he goes a little bit too far with some of their characters, I think. Really? And of course, uh, during the scene of this episode when Blake is slapping Sun, Miles actually didn't write it that way. He did, he, he did not write her slapping him across the face. He actually meant that she would like hit, like hit him on the shoulder, like this. You can see with, with like your right hand tapping your shoulder. Yeah. But of course, he was actually surprised when he actually saw the episode because that was not how he wrote it at all. And sometimes the animators actually take liberties with what's written on the page, which, right. I to think, which I do think is pretty cool. But this is probably one of the biggest facts right here. After, after, after the release of this episode, Aaron Zek, Blake's actress, made a post on Twitter addressing the fan backlash to, to Blake hitting Sun in the face, which of course she posted on Twitter saying just, saying, just because something is out of character doesn't mean it's wrong, nor is it bad writing. Victims of, of abuse can become abusers themselves. Everything is Blake's fault to her. Everywhere she goes, everyone she loves, falls. To have an outburst after everything is out of character. And that's the point. Wow. So it's like, okay, I can very much respect Aaron for taking a stance on this because, like I said, she's been in a fairly amount of bad relationships in the past from what I've read about. And I, and I do appreciate her giving light to that because it's something that many people would not think about. You know, that uh, abuse victims cannot become the villains themselves, which it does happen, honestly. Yeah. And, and of course, even though I don't fully agree with her hitting Sun in the face like that, you know, for you know, comedic effect, even though it's supposed to be a serious moment. Yeah. I, I will say it was fine. It was really nothing all that special. This episode is not one of my favorites, and I honestly wish it was better because it had the responsibility of getting the the readers and the characters up, you know, the, the, the viewers and the characters up to speed with everything that was going on. It did its job decently. And, and I, I do say 
it could have been a lot worse, but it could have been a lot better too. And you know, this uh, the stuff with Blake was really good with her parents, but then they had to set up the stuff with her near the end of the season, which of course was a, was a little was a little bit clunkier. So I'll say this episode had two, maybe three good moments about it, but definitely not in enough bad to you know do an overall bad job. Yeah, so I'll give it a solid B letter ranking. Yeah, honestly, like. This episode is like the literal definition of an info dump. Yeah, basically. But uh, does that make it filler, though? Uh, no, definitely no, not. No, of course not, because it has a lot of information. And, yeah. And what you said about Blake's actor and then the whole scene with hitting Sun. I mean, I thought it was funny, yeah. but, you know, when you really think about it, it's just... It's yeesh. not funny. And that's the thing. Miles is really bad at writing comedy. That's yeah, really I know. Thing. I mean, he can do it, but, he, you he's know, a, it he's needs a, a bit of work. He's a funny guy. He just shouldn't write his own jokes. That's you fair, know? yeah. <laughs> But overall, I thought this episode was fine. It showed yeah. a bit, like showed Blake's more side of the things. Exactly. The info dump was, despite it being ludicrous, mm-hmm. it was very well needed and gave us a little bit more information about how this world came to be. Exactly. What exactly is like the reason Salem wants the stuff? Yeah. Mostly, and why they need to get to Haven Academy and and the very beginning of angsty Jean. Yeah, because that because that's what we need. Mm-hmm. But overall, I say this episode is another solid one. Exactly. Not as good as last episode, but no. I still think it's fine enough to watch through and okay. saw and. I think you wouldn't get bored with it. So, at best, I'll give it maybe like an 8 out of 10. Solid enough. Let us move on to episode 9. Two steps forward, two steps back. So, basically nowhere. Exactly. You know, yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. So, the episode opens with Yang and her father, Tai, sparring while Zwei is watching. Ah, I missed Zwei. Too bad this is one of the last times we see him in the series. I'm going to miss that doggy. Yep. Uh, Her dad gains the upper hand and gives his daughter a long speech about how her semblance is basically a temper tantrum that she uh, uses to punch people. Which, of course, it's really a, a very dumbed-down version of, uh, of her powers, but he's not wrong. You know, she basically gets mad and blows a bunch of sh- with her fire powers. Yeah. Uh, basically, all that stuff happens that she's been using without considering how much it can exhaust her. Yes, she can deal a lot of damage, but when the damage is done, she, she's left tired and sweaty and all that. Yeah. So basically, he gives her a pretty decent life lesson. I, I am not, I'm not, I'm actually not going to lie about this. Hmm. Basically, he accuses her of always trying to brute force her way through all her, all, all her problems, which of course, you know, puts her at a disadvantage from her opponents. This then causes him to start talking about Yang's mother, Raven, which of course is one of the first times they've actually openly talked about her in family discussions, revealing that the traits that he admired about her, he also sees in Yang, too. She has a lot of her mother in her, whether she likes it or not. Yeah. But, but then, of course, Ty mentions that her flaws are what, uh, are what broke up their team years ago after they uh, graduated high school, that she was the splinter that drove them apart. And it really is sad to hear that, honestly, to hear such good friends parting ways on seemingly small things that became big things later on. Yeah. The, the two then spar again. This time, Yang wins through using the same trick that Ty taught her. And, of course, he smiles in approval. I love this. Honestly, yeah. Bernie plays Ty so well as the very chilled and laid-back laid dad. He kind of reminds me of the mentor from Power Rangers Jungle Fury. Yeah. yeah. Um, RJ was very laid-back and very sensible, but he was also very wise and had yeah, a lot of and knowledge. Yeah, and also shows that 
Ty is a really good dad. He is like though, he honestly. he like I bet he would do something similar to this for Ruby. So true. I just wish that you know they got more than one scene together in the whole show. I yeah. mean, technic- technically two with the release of season eight, but we'll get to that when we get to it. Yeah, but like the like the moment here where Ty is basically telling Yang how to use her semblance more in conjunction with her own fighting style, like yeah, it's a pivotal moment because. Yang has basically inherited his fighting skill. Yeah, so, so basically she has her mother's power but her but her dad's skill, which is an excellent yin yang comparison right there. Ah, uh, I see what you did there. Yeah, basically. So th- so then we cut back to Weiss as she is uh, working on her summoning while you know trapped in you know trapped in her room. Uh, basically she is then interrupted by Whitley's dumbass again. Uh, of course. Uh, he then you know taunts her by n- Taunts her about not being allowed to leave the premises. Well, of course, he goes to meet with some business partners of his dad. Yeah, way to, way to rub the salt in the wound there, kid. Uh-huh. Aggravated, she then asks him to ask him if he is just jealous of her and Winter's abilities. Whitley denies it. He really he he really doesn't care about having powers because you know the fact is only the women of the Schnee line ever ever actually get powers. So he doesn't actually have a semblance. No, but basically. So in this case, he's basically a squib. Yeah, basically. Yeah, technically, I guess. Yeah, uh, for those uh, not Harry Potter people, a squib is a person born into a magical family but does not have any magical powers themselves. This this this, this next line though completely defines Whitley's character for me. It wasn't the him looking in Weiss's eyes be like do what dad says or he'll do bad things no this next line completely spells out the whitley's character basically he denies that he doesn't care if he has magical ice powers or not claiming that valuing such things as a huntsman skill is barbaric and beneath me why go fight a war when you can hire an army to do it for you Dude, that's not how that works. Yeah, it really that that just shows the kind of character he is right off. It kind of describes people who see a tragedy but don't want to be the one to take action. Exactly. Yeah, and I I just I hate that what 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 comes later for Whitley is so pivotal to the coming seasons in the future. But we'll get to that as well, my friends. Oh yeah. Uh, basically, Weiss forces him out and slams the door in, in in his face. As then she summons a giant ice knight. Which is awesome. She is, oh, she's, yeah. she's now conquered the, the thing that almost took out her eye in the in her trailer pre-season one. Mr. <laughs> Klein Sieben comes in to see if she is okay. But then, of course, she then asks him for, for a favor. One that will become grateful to her in the future. Blake and Blake and Son are now chasing the spy across the rooftops. Son uses his shadow clones to hold her down while uh, while Blake gets the spot gets the spy's phone, basically breaking breaking the spy's mask. In the process, the spy is re- revealed to be Ilya Amitola, the the person that uh, the Albane twins were talking about earlier in the season, a faunus from Blake's past. Ooh, dark and mysterious. She is a much darker skinned girl with a brown hair that kind of goes into a cute little lisp. She she wears short shorts, a, a short shirt with a vest thing on it. I really think her outfit is fine, but it's it's, it's not really to anything crazy. Yeah, exactly. Um. Actually, the actor of Ilya is played. Um, the actor who plays Ilya played Asuna in the anime Sword Art Online, which everyone said was great until your know, season one ended, and then every other season after that was garbage. It's that bad, huh? Yeah. So it's like the first season, excellent. Never, n- never should have had any other seasons. Just huh, familiar. So, yeah, basically. Uh, basically. They then start to fight, but then Ilya wounds Sun with her weapon, which is basically an electronic whip, which I think is pretty decent. It's yeah. like you know, a, it's like a sword that can become a whip that I think can shoot bullets. I honestly I don't. I want to say yes. 
Um, yes, you know. Yep. Yeah, uh, basically, um, she then informs them that Blake should never have come back, and now she's in great danger. Ilya doesn't make that big of, a, of an impression this season. She's much more important in season five, where things get even more complicated. Oh, yeah. So, let me tell you, I'm not the biggest quote-unquote fan of Ilya. I do recognize her importance in the series, because let me tell you, she has a lot more importance than the oh, the freaking Albane brothers do. Uh. But, but there's still a lot of problems with her writing that become even worse when she actually does something other than whips one of the characters. Yeah, I don't mind Ilya, but, you know, she's a character that could have a lot more potential exactly. if the writers gave a crap. She was actually a little under cooked but of course we'll be able yeah. to see that later uh, it's raw blake then runs over to sun because oh no her prophecy about all her friends getting hurt because of her came true or whatever but then of course she runs over covers his wound he's bleeding but of course he's perfectly fine yeah he's mostly yeah he's fine mostly fine covers up the wound and tells sun to hold on ruby delivers the same message to an unconscious crow who, who they now have to carry on a uh basically a stretcher through the woods yeah. after of course they had to carry him for who knows how long she and Jean are carrying him on a stretcher while Ren and Nora are leading the way looking for some help they come to a fork in the road they and then they have to choose a path of which to travel on that of course lead one of them leads to a destroyed village or the mountain route that goes right to uh, the kingdom of Mistral and Haven Academy so they're pretty much almost there but they have to either go through the mountains or around them and neither option seems good because Crow is very much clinging to life at the moment he's so far gone that he actually thinks that Jean is Thai and tells him that, that she, Summer, is not coming back. And it's so tragic when, of course, hearing this stuff because we hardly ever hear him talk about Ruby's mom a whole lot. Yeah, and, and, I mean, there has to be a specific reason for that, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll like, you'll cover it more in depth in the most up-and-coming seasons, or maybe we'll see it when season 9 comes out. Who knows? Okay, so basically, they reluctantly decide that they have to split up in order to find help for Crow quickest. So Jean and Ruby decide to go uh, around the mountains, while Ren and Nora decide to go over them. And of course, it's a really sad moment when they have to part ways like this because they don't want to split up the team anymore, but they kind of have to. And this was the moment that really made me recognize Neith Ohm's acting right here because he was at least able to emote in a massively of, we cannot stop. We just have to press on. And it's like, ooh, he has some gumption in his voice. Yeah, he's like, he, like, he like brings like a bit of sincerity to Ren with yeah, that moment. Like a big hardened thing. Like He actually started to emote, which is something saying with Ren's character right oh, now. Oh, yeah. The episode ends with them having to split around the mountain and over it. But as they do, they see a uh, footprint in the mud. The same footprint they saw at the dis uh, destroyed village in episode two of this season. So whatever caused the destruction there is not far behind. Who this episode is once again a mixed bag. It has it, it it definitely has more good moments than bad, but it definitely has its slow moments despite only being 15 minutes. Yeah, I mean it's fine enough, but you know, there's some, you feel like it could there's some there's something like missing. Yeah, I mean it tries to cover all bases by talking like you're know, showing stuff from the four girls in your know, you know, 15 minutes. So obviously it can't do much. It basically gave Yang a very nice life lesson with her dad about her mom and her superpower and everything. We get to see Zwei one of the last times. Yeah. We saw Weiss stand up to her brother and how much of a 
is and basically show that yep, she is ready to fight but she but she needs a way out blake is now uh chasing Ilya with uh, with sun and he's injured she feels bad Ilya takes her face off and has eh, a little bit of mystery there but not too much yeah. and of course ruby and john and everybody taking crowan on a stretcher around the mountain it's fairly you know straightforward if you've seen it enough, enough times but it's, it's, it's really just there to move all the stories forward but not in a very significant way yeah it's like it's like one of those episodes you could just skip. It, no, I mean like you could, but then you like, well, but then like you miss a whole bunch. Yeah, of that. Stuff yeah, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. You could skip it because it doesn't really have a lot, but it also has some stuff that kind of goes over to the next episode, so you kind of have to watch it. So, uh, coin toss. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You want to know what's really weird about this episode? My Actually, it's my only fact about it. What? Basically, during the very ending of the episode when Ruby and everybody's carrying Crow, all of the patches of mud on the ground were supposed to be water puddles. You, you basically notice that there's a bunch of mud holes in the street. Those were supposed to be filled with water. However, Carrie, Carrie Shuckross, the big director that took over for Monty, didn't, didn't notice until it was too late that the freaking holes weren't filled with water. So basically now, the episode is forever going to have holes that should have been filled with you know, rainwater in there. It was at that moment that he knew he effed up. Yeah, so basically that's kind of sad that they actually overlooked a massive you know, gap in the... How do you forget something like that? Monty, Seriously. Monty would never have, have, have let that subside, but I guess that when a, you know, a series goes on long enough without the person that started it, things start to get slippy, and this is definitely one of them. Oh, yeah. So I personally think this episode is overall fine, but nothing too extravagant. So I'll happily give episode nine, two steps forward, two steps back, a B letter, a B letter grade. Yeah, uh, the episode naming is fitting. It does go two steps forward, but it also goes two steps back. Yeah, so we'll that. technically, yeah. So yeah. it really went nowhere. Yeah. So, I mean, I still think the episode is fine enough, but I know for a fact that it could have been so much better. I know. I mean, a little bit more. I mean, again, though, it's not bad. No, it's, it's not just bad. Like, it's like muddled. That's yeah. the best way to put it. It's they about as to... uh, deep as a rain puddle. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They try to tell four stories in 15 minutes, and, and they honestly are just trying as hard as they can to tell what they can. They just want to push it. Yeah, because now we're like you're hitting into the final quarter of the season. It's time for the big epic thing to be hyped up now. Yeah, so with that, I'll give the episode maybe like around a 7.5 out of 10. Very much solid, my friend. And without further ado, we're now actually heading into one of my Personal favorite, but not overall greatest of quality episodes. Episode 10 of season 4, Kuro Yuri. Mm. Now, this episode is a massive exp ex exposition dump again, but it actually does it in a very invigorating and entertaining way. Um, Osbin, oh no, Oscar is actually finally leaving his dang aunt's farm with Osbin Os inside his head to finally walk their way all, well, I mean, they're actually going to begin their journey all the way over to Mistral after much discussing last episode. Right. It's honestly funny that I didn't mention this earlier in the season. Osbin tried to get Oscar to understand that what he was seeing was real by like, like asking him to describe the headmaster's office. And then Oscar realizes that he can because their memories are merging. Whatever Osbin remembered throughout all the stuff that he's been through oscar will eventually know too so i guess eventually he key like came to terms with his situation i guess because we never actually see him leaving because by the time the episode starts he's already on his way out yeah 
Okay, so uh, he then talks about how it's scary leaving home for the first time and how you know terrifying it could be to step out into a situation you have no idea what's going on. But, but of course, he knows that he'll never find true happiness on the farm, and he needs to go be elsewhere. Yeah, but, so basically, pull a Luke Skywalker. It really is, though. I keep saying this every time we cut back to this season. We, we then, of course, uh, they then stop at the train station to buy a ticket... But then they realize we didn't we didn't bring no money with us. Damn so, it! And of course, I love how they like jokingly said, "Okay, I'm guessing Force Ghosts don't have infinite supply of money. No, you're gonna have to be creative." And then, uh. and then of course, Osmond voice advised him that he'll have to figure stuff out of figure stuff out on his own because he won't be there to help him all the time. But then immediately cautions him because someone is coming, and out of the rain comes. Hazel took him long enough. He's been gone the whole season. Yeah, and of course, this is only his second time we've seen him since he debuted in, in the premiere. He towers over Oscar, though. He is absolutely terrifying. Yeah, ha- yeah. Hazel is honestly like when you look at him, he he's huge. He really is, honestly. I really do. I wonder if they actually give his height. Yeah, eight feet tall. Really, Hazel is eight feet freaking tall, and, and it honestly shows that when we go up there, basically. Uh, Hazel comes, sees that Oscar needs a, needs a train ticket, so what does he do? He smashes the machine for him and gets him a ticket to follow. Yeah, it's something like this. Boom. And there you go, course, kid. I uh, love, thanks. I love Hazel's one sentence to, until you get Oscar. Uh, never never let small obstacles obstruct your path. And it's like, ooh, it's also foreshadowing. I, mean, I know he's one of the villains, but also it's words to live by when you think about it. It really is. After uh, Hazel is long gone and walking into the rainstorm, kind of weird that he's just walking in the rain for no reason, but hey, it's you know, it's like anime, so whatever. Yeah. Um, Oscar mentions he feels a reaction to his presence and asks Osmond, who is that? Osmond admits that Hazel is someone from his past who is not to be taken lightly. Now, we're eventually going to explain Hazel's relationship to Osmond because there is something there. But when we get to it, I will not have very many nice things to say about it. Oh, that'll be fun. Because even though it's very mysterious that Osmond is terrified of Hazel, it really is nothing all that great. Yep. So so now we then cut back to uh, Jean and Ruby taking Crow through the ruined city of Kuro Yuri, carrying him. The city is completely dilapidated, so they're not going to find any medical supplies. Duh. Well, and then, duh. Uh, That's good going, guys. Ruby is asking Jean why Ren was so adamant about not going through the town, and Jean can pretty much think of why. The, most of the m- most of the rest of the episode is a flashback to Ren's childhood because he actually lived in this town before it was abandoned, which I think is honestly really awesome that we're finally. Four seasons in, getting Ren's backstory. Yeah, because I'm like, this guy has to have some backstory, right? And then we see, it's like, it's about damn time! It really is. His past is finally revealed, showing him as a child talking with his mother and anticipating his father's return from hunting, I guess. And of course... uh, Simple folk. His his old mother gives him a dollar and tells him to go buy a gift for his dad, which I think is so funny because it's like you give a kid a dollar and then goes around running around town looking for stuff. Yeah. And of course, the entire rest of the day he goes around looking for stuff. But then Ren hears some bullies picking on a little girl in red hair and very clear eyes. Hmm. Very interesting, right there. What the. F- Conundrum. Yep, uh, but of course, instead of fighting the bullies, Ren actually starts to run away right at the feet of his father, who actually do, to, do you know, scare off the bullies. And of course, I do believe that um, his father tells his son that 
taking no action is even worse than taking no action at all. Mm, Which this season is so wise with its sayings, I swear. I miss the wise writing of Ruby, folks. We'll we'll be getting to that at a a later date later. Uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, And they go, basically, Ruby and Jean do not find any medicine in the city and basically return to where they left Crow, just plopped next to a tree in the town square. Then they hear an ominous cry of a grim in in the distance. It causes them to react, but it's really no current threat. Hmm. Ruby feels the burden of having brought so many people into this horrible situation because... Yeah, she basically up and you know, left home with the process of thinking that it would only take a week to walk across the country. Yeah. But then, of course, I do love Jean's answer, that he refuses to accept Ruby's apology because she didn't ask them to come. They, they, they wanted to follow her and said that you know, they would have done this without her. Doing, she's doing everything she can, she, she can do despite everything they've lost. Penny, Pira, Beacon, technically her team and her sister. But she keeps fighting no matter what. That is who Ruby Rose is. No matter what happens in the face of doom, she'll never give up the fight to be the best hero ever and save the world. Oh, yeah. So awesome. Basically, uh, we then come back to Ren's past where he's awakened in the middle of, of the night because a creature known as the Necklavy, dun dun dun, is, is now fo- mm. has followed the Ren's father and his soldiers back to the city and is now attacking it. They have to leave in order to be able to save themselves. And of course, what they have to do is he's scared, but his mother, Ren's mother, reassures him that everything will be fine. And then the roof crushes his mother to death. Yeah, so that happened. Because, yeah, remember back in the season 3 premiere when Nora said that Ren and her were orphans? Yeah, this is basically going really far deep into that because even though his father manages to get Ren out out of the house as the entire town is being devoured by this Neclavi Grimm, his father is simply too weak to go any further, gives his knife to Ren and tells him to run, to to never stop fighting. And it really is sad for Ren to have seen his father go at such a young age. Yeah, It really is one of the most emotional moments of the entire series. Even though it's not top tier like Pira dying emotional it's still pretty darn emotional and very effective mm-hmm. basically Ren goes to hide while his father tries to fight the Necklavy with a bow and arrow but of course he's eventually killed as well so it's really a very somber moment right there it is uh, he then you know, runs off, leaving his father to fight the beast. Ren then hides under underneath an aqueduct while the beast and all the all the other creatures of Grimm are hunting them. But then he sees the little girl that that was being picked on by the bullies earlier hiding under a building across the way. The Necklavy is now moving toward her. Ren sighs and cries and realizes that his father and his mother are dead. However, Ren gathers his courage and activates his superpower. We finally learn what Ren's gosh darn power is and his ability is being able to shut his emotions off to be invisible to the creatures of Grimm. He he then locks his emotions away to become powerful. It's honestly very clever. It really shows why he's so closed off all the time. He is at his most strong when he shows no emotion at all. Which, of course, that's actually really tragic when you think about it. Oh, yeah. He can't be happy because then he'd technically be weaker, which is really sad when, when you think about it. Yeah. Oh, boy. Then, then of course, uh, he caused a shimmer of aura and decoloration of his appearance. His colors basically drain away from his face. A freaking Nevermore descends on the town, where, of course, he then goes to the girl to try and protect her. He rushes and gives her courage, telling her, We have to be brave. 
and I love that. Just basically masking her and him from the giant bird, decoloring her as well. Both the Neclavi and the giant bird in front of it. Let me tell you, the looking at the at the Nevermore now compared to the one they fought in season one, it looks so much more detailed with the new animation style. Very much so. Uh, and I, I, I love this moment. It's probably one of my favorite moments of the entire show. As I, as I said, this episode is not one of the best, but it's one of my favorites. Ren picks up a little wooden hammer and gives it to the little girl asking what her name is. I think y'all know exactly who I'm talking about. And it's one of the best cute things I've ever seen because the scene then cuts to Ren and Nora getting to the top of the mountain. And I love how they have the little cute exchange, how they never get the easy road. Never ever. Oh, they, they, they've they actually been together since they were kids. And I love that so much about their characters. Who would have thought? I'm really gushing about it, I know, because everyone loves their characters so much. Yes. Okay, so basically, when they come back to the present day, Ren and Nora notice that there's a draft in a cave at the top of the mountain, realizing that they that they can get through it by simply going through the cave that's at the top for some reason. And But then, of course, as they walk through the cave, they realize that weapons and bones are scattered all over the floor of the cave. This is most likely the Neclavi's lair that they find the flags and the weapons from the villages that they saw way back at the start of the season, weeks away. This thing gets around, despite being very slow every other time we see yeah. it. They then go to the other side of the uh, mountain and realize that, oh crap, the, uh, the Neclavi is heading straight for Jean, Ren, uh, for Jean, Ruby, and Crow. They have to get down the bottom of the mountain in order to save them. They, they of course, see the trees rumbling underneath the, the creature roars as the episode ends. So darn good. What a cliffhanger, huh? Yeah, it's really good that it manages to pack so much backstory and flashbacks, but also tender moments in the present as well. This is how I expect to see all of my anime flashback backstories. Oh, yeah. I, sw I swear to God, my friends. This is how you do stuff like that right. I swear to God. Mm. One of my favorite facts about this episode, it's probably one of my only facts about it, honestly, is the knife that... Ren's father gives to him is very similar to how his own weapons are inspired because the blade is shaped exactly as the blades on his two green guns are shaped. There you he, go. He basically inspired his you know, weapons from his parents, which I think is awesome. I, I, really, yeah. I really do like that. It's like how Ruby inspired her weapon from Crow's weapon. Yeah. Very, very, very much similar. Similarly, he gives Nora her you know wooden hammer. She <laughs> then gets a hammer in yeah. real life, which I think is very, very awesome. Uh, so basically, they had some really Really excellent acting and some really excellent animation. This is a very much it it you know, it, it, it like doesn't really advance the story. But mind you guys, it's really the only time that we ever get some major story importance put on Ren and Nora because if you haven't really noticed, other times they really are just the B squad. They're Essentially, just, yeah. They're just there to be supportive, other than Jean. You know, and Pira's purpose was to die. But you know, yeah. that, that's basically the other thing that I'll get. I'll, I'll definitely get to that next season. Oh but, yeah. You know, I loved the action. The animation, the the uh, the writing. This episode had a lot of good things, but it wasn't top tier of the season. Really, I feel like it was a little bit too long. I feel like they could have trimmed at least one, two, maybe three minutes off the episode, and it honestly would have been so much better with the pacing. The pacing is probably the only issue I have with the episode. That's fair. I can agree with that because this episode, like we saw Ren and Nora's backstory, we yes. know how they came to be, we know how they became orphans. I like that. I, I want. Do. I liked. I want more of that, please. Me too. And the fact that like, the episode. Ending on a cliffhanger, and the fact that they get to fight the Neclavi after all these years, yeah. it's like.
like it really is tense. It gets you hyped yeah, for the end. It's of the coming season. full circle too, because it it's does. gonna be nuts. It really is, folks. I cannot wait for us to show you guys. But that was the closing of Ren and Nora's backstory episode. I balance in between giving it a B and a B plus, but for right now, I'll just give it a B just to be safe. Yeah, I'll be solid with that and give it like just an eight out of I, ten because it's fine enough, but we know that could be better. Exactly, it could be better, but it was very solid nonetheless. So now let us head into the second to last episode of season four of Ruby. This one I have a little, tiny little bit of an issue with. It's called Taking Control. Oh and of course, the very first opening thing of this episode is we finally get back to Cinder in the Land of Darkness. Because, yeah, I really wanted to learn what their story was. Hey, guys, Mercury gets no lines this season. He's basically pointless to have on screen because he, he does nothing. Yeah, he just you, could just, you could just... Pluck, pluck him out of there and... Pluck him out of the season and miss nothing. Yeah. Mercury does nothing until halfway through season five. And even then, it's barely nothing. Yep. It's like, I mean, okay, but yeah, back to back to the actual story. So Cinder is being trained by Salem to use her maiden powers for pure evil. And of course, Salem reiterates the words that you know, Cinder gave her months ago. I thought you were the girl who wanted power. Did you lie to me? It's like, oh, now I'm starting to see why this character is starting to glance because she's a really awesome character, but not all of her dialogue is as menacing as her appearance is. And, you know, yeah. some, sometimes it just comes off as snippy, snippy godmother stuff, a little bit like that. Basically, uh, then Tyrion finally comes back in, weeping to himself and fearing of displeasing his goddess that she will forgive him for his error, and he bows to his knees because he failed to get Ruby Rose, which is basically his whole thing to do this season. Tyrion, and, quit groveling. You're making yourself look stupid. Yeah, kind of, a little bit. He basically defends his failure by saying that he poisoned Crow and you know, he will soon die because apparently no one survives the scorpion sting, I guess. Yes. And of course, uh, Salem tells him that even though the other eye was blinded, you disappoint me. And the scene that follows, when I first saw it, I'd be like, Josh Greel is an awesome voice actor. Because even though even though the scene is a bit wince-inducing and a little cringy, Tyrion snaps. He starts yelling and crying at the top of his lungs, seeing one of the Grim that they were using for target practice with Cinder's powers in the corner, and just yells at it, jumps on it, and just starts slicing it to pieces. After a while, he's not even crying anymore. He's laughing and crying with his tongue hanging out, enjoying ripping this thing to shreds, and just having a heck of a hootin' time. It's honestly one of the few moments where Cinder is terrified. She usually just shows anger and resentment. But in this moment, she was terrified of Tyrion. It's honestly... Yeah, like, she's just like us. Because I got chills when I first watched that scene. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I see where most of that inspiration came from. Exactly. And the thing about it is, she's never fearful of him ever again. Which, which was honestly saying is how they really don't have that many scenes together, period, to begin with. So, yeah. I, so I, I, I really can't say for certain. Because, you know, if you guys haven't noticed, there's a lot of freaking characters in this show that we have to cover. Yep. Uh, we then cut back to Yang as she then spray paints the robotic arm that General Ironwood gave her yellow and black. Awesome. Oh yeah. Love that stuff that thing right there. But then she gets ready to leave on to leave on her motorcycle. Oh yeah, she has a motorcycle. I forgot. Yeah. And then of course, remember when that was a big thing in the season one teaser and then, you know, the second season and then she never used it again. But now she's she's gonna be using it. But then of mm. course her dad catches her and you know arrives her to wish her goodbye because, you know, Ruby kinda leaving with only a note was kind of a 
move a little bit. Yeah. But then, of course, he she, he then asks her if she's going to go after Ruby or if, or if she's going to go see her mother. Because Ty also knows where she is right now. You know, because apparently, even though she asked for so many years, apparently no one knew where she was. Crow and Ty knew the entire time and just didn't tell her. You jerks. I would basically chop that down to, oh, the writers had simply not figured that out yet. But so then, of course, he then asks her, which which uh, direction are you, are you going to go? To your sister or your mother? How, how, however, before she can answer, the scene then cuts to, okay, I've been saving up this thing because a friend of mine pointed this out to me when I showed her the television series. This is the scene when Weiss is attempting to leave the family grounds. Oh, uh, I was gonna, I was, I know what you're talking about. Basically, like, trying to sneak out of the mansion. In the, in, like, the middle of the night, she has her suitcase and her sword and everything's ready to go. Um, she then attempts to sneak out with the, with the help of Klein. You know, he's basically making sure that nothing is happening while she attempts to sneak right. out of here. A, Along the way, she overhears her father and General Ironwood arguing about his decision to close the Atlas borders out of out of fear that the other three kingdoms will turn on Atlas because they blame them for the fall of Beacon. Which, of course, is still pretty dumb, not yeah. gonna lie. Basically, Ironwood also mentions that Winter is in Mistral, and that and that how reporting that a serious threat is brewing there. People are mobilizing. Stuff is happening in frickin' Mistral. Yeah, Winter. Mistral. That's great. Uh, basically, then we cut to noticing that the conversation is about to end, and that, uh, and of course, the Mister Ironwood is on his way out. Weiss uses her her ice magic to basically lock the door. Now, see, that would be an awesome power if she used it more than just this one episode. Yeah. You know, it feels like Weiss's ice magic is only used for whatever the plot needs it to it's be. It's very inconsistent. It really is, though, because we guys remember back in the at the very end of season two, and you know, sort of at the start when she used time dilation ice magic, and then never used it again. Yeah, what happened? Uh, I, uh, people have been asking that stuff forever. Weiss then uses a uh, her magic to lock the door. She then escapes through a secret passage in the library, which I think is really cool. Honestly, the thing about it is. Okay, okay, tiny, tiny spoiler. We eventually circle back to Atlas in the plot because, you know, anime always always goes back to, to like, familiar places. The thing is, why didn't we go through the secret passage when the story went back to Atlas, though? I would, yeah. I would honestly love to go through that, but I guess the writers forgot about it, I yeah. guess. Uh, then, of course, it is a very nice moment when she hugs Klein goodbye because, if you ask me honestly, if this entire season has proven anything... Klein was more of her father than her than her actual father. Oh, ever hell be. yeah! You, you can't you can't deny that. No, I I, I, would, I would honestly say that Klein is one of the best uh, representations of DID I've ever seen oh, in, yeah. in television, and it technically means that she had seven dads, not just one, <laughs> which I honestly do like. But of course, before we get into the final part of this episode. Little bit of a mini rant because I know we're have to, we have to get towards oh, the this, of the end. Oh, this is gonna be so, funny. I know it's pointless, but it's gonna be funny. Go ahead, y'all. Okay, have y'all ever played Metal Gear Solid or any game that involves stealth of any kind? So, know? like Metal Gear Solid, Splinter Cell, maybe a little bit of Enter the Matrix, Assassin's Creed, Max Payne, well. uh, Batman: The Arkham games. You know, the thing about that is you always have to be quiet. Otherwise, the people you're sneaking around will notice that you're there. Yeah, so, I mean, Weiss, I'd say she's stealthy except for the fact that, oh, I don't know, she's got real clackers on. Yeah, she's wearing her stiletto shoes trying to sneak out of her noisy-ass mansion. Like, why don't you take your shoes off when you're trying to sneak around the mansion but be like, oh, wait, no, she has her suitcase in one hand, 
her sword in the other. She obviously can't carry her shoes, too. But then, of course, okay, people say, well, they didn't make a model of her without her shoes off. And yeah, okay, fine. It's really pointless. It's really dumb. But now I will never be able to unsee that, no matter how many times I rewatch this damn show for the millionth time. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's another reason, but, you know, we don't want to disclose that here because we don't want to go... Because this brain has already gone long enough as is. Exactly. Now, of course, we get to the back half of the episode. Son eventually wakes up on the couch in Blake's dad's study from the wound is there. I'd honestly like to see a, another model of him made in the future with, like, a scar on his shoulder. Yeah. That would honestly be really cool. Basically, Blake is there and greatly upset about him getting hurt and basically yelling that this is exactly what she thought would happen because this is what happened with her friends because the white fang were only there because she was there and all that. And it just, it just goes on a little bit too long. I'm sorry, but I love Aaron's acting. The problem is she goes on for a long time about something that could have been said in two sentences. It really is like that. And I know she's emotional and she's not thinking clearly and whatnot, but Son lays it out perfect. He points out that she is not actually being selfless when she runs away from her friends. Leaving her friends behind so that they can be safe hurts them way more than she thinks. And the only reason he followed her is because he didn't want her to be alone when she clearly needed people that she knew. There you go. And I love that about Son. He is the ultimate bro, even if his bro is a girl. I yeah. like that. Yeah, I really absolutely. do like that. He, he, he then overexerts his arm a little bit, saying that, you know, even, even if she doesn't want him there, he's going to be there as long as it takes for her to get better. Besides, we need to have a rematch between him and Illy in the future because his arm hurts really bad. And then, of course, they have a very cute moment as a call back to earlier in the season when Son said my hero to Blake but now she says my hero to him and it's honestly very cute wow even th- even though that's really beginner writing stuff and if Miles did actually write that I would honestly believe it yeah. but then of course also going full circle the Blake's parents crash through the freaking door breaking it for a second time and, and her freaking mother is acting all awkward and shit oh no we're disturbing the college Please. It's like, we are in a sitcom. And okay, the only thing that makes the joke not as cringy is Blake and Son's reaction. Mom! Uh, hey, Mrs. B! <laughs> it's okay, that saved it. Michael's acting saved the scene. That very is funny, much. yeah. And then, of course, uh, we confirm what we pretty much already knew. You know, Adam Torres is leading a splinter cell to try and usurp the, the now current leader of the White Fang's leadership, and they're trying to recruit people from Menagerie or whatever. It's all basically technical stuff that I really don't care. Yeah, no, honestly, no one will really care. I really do want to, though. But, of course, they at least finally name drop the freaking leader of the White Fang that's been leading it since the first season that, you know, Blake didn't name drop her because why not? Her name is Sienna Khan. We'll get more into her next season. Uh, But but it's like, um, instead of coming out... So, Blake gets her head back and says that instead of destroying the White Fang... They're going to take it back. Now, I kind of feel like inserting the joke from the first Guardians movie where, like, Rocket Raccoon laughs at Pierre Quill's plan. <laughs> that is the most real, authentic, genuine laugh of my entire life because that is not a plan. It's like, I, like okay, I know I shouldn't be that mean to Blake because obviously she went through a very emotional moment. But it's like taking back the White Fang, but... How exactly? Yeah, but, so uh, that's not a real plan. No, it really isn't. But yeah, then, but like, then of course, so yeah, yeah, I could just imagine. I could, if they wanted to rip up, if I wanted to parody Guardians of the Galaxy, Sun would look like, so that's the plan? <laughs> that's a fake laugh. It's real. Well, yeah, but you know, like, then, of course, you know, the plan is much more explained upon in Season 5. 
Kinda, Aye. but we'll get to that when we get Aye. to it. Uh, but then, of course, the episode ends with Ren and Nora running into the Kuroyuri wrecked village, but, uh, but of course, arriving too late. I do think that the directing in this episode was a bit off. I don't think it's a bad direction that they, no. that they took with this. Ren, Ren falls, to his, falls to his knees, seeing that the Necklavi is already in the town. Then, then we cut to it. The Necklavi is freaking terrifying. I really yeah. cannot lie. It's it's a Grim that's legs is a horse and it's an upper torso and arms that have claws on it. It's essentially a demonic centaur. It really is though, and that's why I love it. It's honestly one of my most favorite Grim of the whole series, especially since we only see it the one time. Yeah. And I really do have to appreciate it for that for being a once in a lifetime ending your know, villain threat yeah and i do and i do like that i do wish that you know what what like could have happened is that we cut to a scene where ruby and john are yelling at them and then and, like the necklavy is standing right behind them all like slenderman style and then they turn around slowly seeing it looking down at them with the shadow and then, and then, it, and then it screams in their faces and then and then we end the episode yeah the episode kind of ends like in a way like kind of how it does if you're caught by slenderman and the game's like a freaking jump scare yeah and the screen flickers and just cuts like that would be like a but of course you know in like a hindsight this episode is probably my second least favorite of the season not gonna lie because really they try to move the plot forward by like of course again finally showing us what the villains are doing after after, you know all all this kind of stuff with the heroes because the villains don't really get a lot of screen time in season four true yeah they get the entire opening minutes of the season premiere and then they're simply scattered throughout yeah it's not bad but i would have loved to see a like maybe a whole episode of the 12 focused on them so that we could get all of their development element out of the way and then we can have the rest of the season be everybody else yeah it's it basically you have to pick your moment kind of thing right oh i did forget to talk about this so the final scene of ironwood in this episode is the last time that we will see him until season seven when we eventually circle back to atlas for the plot and and ironwood threatens weiss's father saying that it is his decision to close the border because he holds two seats on the Atlas Council. Basically saying that he holds all the power in the city because he has two you know, cards on the table. And of course, uh, he then threatens Weiss's father, saying that if something bad happens and they have to you know, pick a side... He better be on Ironwood's good side because you don't want to be on his bad side. Oh yeah, uh, and then, yo, that's gonna be expanding. You know what? A lot I've been thinking. About, I've actually been thinking about this. Like yeah. we all mentioned that Ironwood has two seats on the council. Here's a better idea: have him as one seat for Atlas Academy. And have Winter take the military spot. Yeah. Why not just have that? Because Winter is Ironwood's second in command. Exactly. Just do that. I mean, mind you, though, she may want to stay out of the political light, almost. And I guess, but still, come on. But then, of course, considering what happens in later seasons, she may want to take a leadership role. Yeah. Plus, not to mention the fact with the, with Ironwood serving two seats, the Council of Atlas is probably one of the most biased councils in this series exactly because okay we only see the silhouettes of the beacon council only once because you know beacon fell a season later yeah. we never see the mistral council even though they are mentioned a few times right. never ever once but then of course with the atlas council we actually see how that works and it kind of sucks yeah not gonna lie <laughs> oh my goodness but of course all that said and done this episode was perfectly fine but it definitely could have used another rewrite oh yeah 
without a single shadow of a doubt. Some of the dialogue goes on way too long, and it's very repetitive and over-exemplifying. It's basically just the filler episode before the finale starts. Yeah, it's the setup for it. I and, mean... And the stupid thing with Weiss's shoes will forever bug this episode. Probably. And again, there's another reason why they couldn't do it, because fans might, you know... Yeah, they, uh, they might, you know, find that sexy for some reason. Yeah, compared <laughs> to those kinds of weirdos. But regardless uh, of such, regardless. minus that little plot element, yeah. this episode's fine. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, perfectly. I, again... It could have been written a little bit better, but, it you know, it had to be done. Exactly. It had to be done for plot convenience or whatever. It gets everything that needs to do. It does all the setup it needs to for the finale. And thank goodness the finale definitely paid off the hype, because oh, if yeah. it hadn't, there probably would have been more more like it than a few angry fans. Yeah, so how would you rate this episode, the penultimate episodes of season four? Solid C+, plus, honestly. Yeah, yeah, honestly, if I had to translate to a, that to a number, maybe a 7.5 out of 10 for me, honestly. Most it's, Again, it's fine, but again, we both agree that I could use a rewrite, and then it would probably would have been good. Definitely. And at long last, my friends, we've now come to the season four finale of Ruby, No Safe Haven. Now, this episode... Buckle your seatbelts. We, we then cut back to the city of Kuroyuri, where Team Ranger begins to fight the Neklavi to little success. It's probably one of one of the strongest Grim that they've ever fought ever. While of course they also have to protect uh, Crow, who is now you know still injured or whatever. You know, Crow has a very small role after you know he gives all that exposition in the season. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, Jean of course rejoins after getting Crow to safety and getting several slashes against the Necklopee's legs. Of course, using the upgrades to his sword and armor, with of course Pyrrha's armor melted in, so she's technically part of the fight too, which is really awesome. Uh, basically, they, they then continue to... Uh, the Grim is unfazed. Every single attack that they throw at this monster is unsuccessful. Un until, of course, Ren dives in to save Nora from almost being killed by the beast, followed by a very funny joke about Nora being self-conscious about Ren accidentally looking up her poopy skirt, which I think is really funny. I honestly love that scene very much. Yeah. And then, how, however, soon Nora's aura is completely done, and Ren just keeps trying to uh, save her by slicing at the monster with his, with his weapons over and over and over again. Ren is so determined to kill the thing that did this to his home, to his parents, uh, over so much anger and rage that he is just throwing at this thing. He is so ready to keep on fighting that if he keeps going, they probably won't survive. Nora holds him back from getting back into the fight, and she basically just slaps him across the face to snap him out of his blind rage, and she lays it down. It's probably one of the very first times that Nora has ever actually been serious in a situation. Yeah. And let me tell you, serious Nora is as good as comic relief Nora. Heck yeah. <laughs> Samantha Ireland gave one of her probably best performances of Nora in this scene, basically tells him that she does not want Ren to get himself pointlessly killed by this after all they've been through together they've simply lost too much and they refuse to lose anyone else yeah and i love how in that moment ren comes to his senses realizing that they're under the same bench that they were when they were children and that he still in many ways sees nora as the helpless little girl that needed to be saved but she's not they're not children anymore. They've grown up into the warriors that they would always have become because of the hardships that they faced, and only by working together can they conquer the traumas of the past to look forward towards a brighter future. Oh, yeah. And I love it. The show doesn't even have to say a word, and I get a whole paragraph out of it. Mm -hmm. That is what makes Ruby awesome. 
And then, of course, they, re uh, they rejoin the fight, and they come up with an amazing plan, like I said, working together to take down the Necklaby. They, yeah. of course... Uh, they, they basically have to cut off the limbs in order to attack it directly because it's swinging at them all the time. And of course, Ren manages to cut off all of its limbs once his friends hold the, hold the Grim down, basically claiming vengeance for the fallen and of course for his lost childhood, killing it with his father's blade, decapitating it. Amazing. Yeah. Let me tell you, I loved that scene so goddamn. Yeah. It is amazingly awesome. Fortunately, the smoke that uh, the Necklavy turns into attracts the attention of two airships from Mistral. Okay, this is kind of like a Deus Ex Machina thing. The fight, the fight was actually one of the best of the whole season, if not the best fight of the season. But of course, the fact that the two airships just happen to be flying by and hear all the gunfire and the explosions is kind of a bit of a reach. Yeah. But but hey, I guess you know they had to move the plot to a resolution somehow, even though they probably could have done it in a much smarter way. Yeah. Uh, basically, they're they're then picked up by the airships, who then carry them safely to the kingdom of Mistral. We finally arrived, my friends. And Mistral is beautiful. It really is, honestly. Okay, even though season five is going to be probably much more of a headache than either of us can endure, uh, I will admit, the setup of the Kingdom of Mistral was honestly really well done. Oh, absolutely. The Kingdom of Mistral, as we've mentioned in previous seasons, takes you know influence from many Asian cultures mixed, mixed, mixed in together. So, the kingdom is based on you know, a bunch of low valleys, hidden misty, ramshackle huts, and some of the uh, houses are built up into the sky on mountains, which I think is really remnant of all the mountains ranges that Asia uh, oh, absolutely. Was, uh, occupies. And in one of probably the most cutest scenes ever, Nora and Ren's theme, uh, What Am I To Do, plays on piano from season two <laughs> as they slowly hold hands on the airship ride into the kingdom. Yeah. It's probably it's another one of my favorite moments. This is definitely one of my favorite seasons for Ren and Nora yeah. ever. Even though they played a very small role, they had some of the strongest moments. Absolutely. Without a single shadow of a doubt. They're then given a home to rest because of, you know, obviously that's you know, very nice of them to just get a house in the middle of the city for you know, uh, the time being. Uh, Crow receives medical attention and begins recovering with, of course, Ruby checking in on him and in, and in uh, their room. And now to one of the most emotional moments of the entire show. Yep. I love this part right here. Ruby begins to write a letter to her sister in, in, explaining everything that happened during this during the season and the toll that is it is taken on all of them. And of course she apologizes for leaving as abruptly as she did. Mm -hmm. As she's like writing this letter, which is a very wholesome and little little tiny tiny bit cheesy, but it's overall wholesome. As she's uh, narrating what she's writing on the page, we cut to the other three girls and how their journeys have ended as the season is. Because mind you, the finale has mostly been about Team Ranger, yep. when basically only like droplets of the other three is shown yep. at the mm -hmm. end. Um, Weiss pays a pilot to sneak her away with uh, cargo on it, you know, with a cargo on an airship. She's going to go to Mistral because you know, winter is there. They can reconnect and figure out what's going on. But of course, it'll also get her in contact with Ruby and the gang eventually. Right. Um, Blake goes through her father's old things, which of course holds one of the original White Fang flags that shows that even though an idea can be corrupted, good people can always come along to bring good light to it again. Damn straight. And then of course, uh, Yang looks at a picture of Team Star while on a ship that she's on. Basically, she boarded a uh, a 
uh, ship to go to Mistral because she knows that Ruby is heading there. And of course, she takes her bike along for the ride because extreme yeah. Yang. And it's here where we see the first edition of Yang's Phase Two outfit. It's basically a long wraparound mini cape, I guess, with like you know a mini jacket and you know has like an open belly type thing. It's, it's still fine. Brown. It's fine. I hate it. Why? Honestly, it looks awful. Like this thing is like it's not really combat ready because like, mind you when you're doing a lot of kicks and things do you want something trailing behind you as you're walking when you're fighting uh, i well, really don't want that because I, I mean if you want to look flashy sure but. i mean yeah i can see if it was like a cape or something but no it's something that like connects to her belt or her pants or something i just it, it i never liked the look of her outfit like okay i said that i didn't like weiss's outfit because she's more of a gray personality now with everything that happened but i can look past that blake's outfit is also hit or hit or miss for me because it's not really much much more black because you know she's also getting to be a whiter nicer personality yeah. i could not find anything to like about yang's outfit for four five and six seasons mm. if i'm being completely honest but mm. that's you know besides the point uh, she then soon arrives in Anima, you know, the the, uh, the continent that Mistral is in, um, arrives on her bike. Ty also looks at the same picture of him and Team Stark, but also a picture of Team Ruby signed, New Friends. And it's so darn sweet. How did he get that photo, though? Because, I have like, no idea. I mean, probably, probably because they brought it from the ruins of the school or something. Yeah. Um, Rajan reflects on Pyrrha's absence because, you know, they may have survived their newest battle, but does it really mean the same if their teammate is not here to experience it? But, Who knows? But that's the overall message of Season 4. Even though your friends are gone, they're never really gone because those of us... Every every everything they left on us is still there. Their imprint is is left, even though we can't feel them still here. And Ren and Nora coming in to hug Jean with Pira's stuff on his sword and shield in the corner it, it exemplifies that perfectly in mm. this scene. Um, Oscar is now riding a train to Mistral. It, um, we then see Ilya meeting with the Albane brothers. Remember how I said they basically did nothing this season? Yeah. But basically, yeah. So she meets with them because obviously they're going to be a thing in season five. And of course, Sim Cinder continues to train with Salem and Emerald and Mercury are in the background again. Doing nothing. She then provides a, a hallucination of Ruby for Cinder to target. To have a thing for her anger to be focused on. She's going to kill Ruby obliterate her if it's the last thing she does for all the indignity and the dishonor that she's been thrust upon her, I guess. And then, yeah. of course, um, after Ruby finishes her letter, Crow jokes that he's that, uh, aren't I normally the one saving you? Which is very true and very wholesome. Yeah. Despite their plan to soon meet, so the next plan, the next part of the plan, they're going to go up to Haven Academy to meet with the professor there, one of Osborne's best friends, Professor Leonardo Lionheart. Basically, you know how Crow is basically the Scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz, Iron Ironwood is the Tin Man, Lionheart is, well, the Lion. Yeah. And of course, that'll, that'll be their next big thing when we get to Season 5. Right. It's honestly a really nice cutoff of the letter, showing the interior of, Lion, of Lionheart's office. It's very cool, I think. And then the and then the season finale drops in the last ten seconds. Makes makes a decision that I still don't like to this day. It feels like something that they didn't need to put in there. They could have ended the season when Ruby closed the letter up. That that would just be it. Story they go season over for now. But they reveal 
that Arthur Watts is in the headmaster's office. Our second time seeing him. We only see him in the premiere and the finale of this season. It's, it's revealed that Watts has already arrived in the office, revealing that Leonardo Lionheart is Salem's informant in Mistral. Basically showing that even, even before we've heard his voice, seen his face, that he's a traitor. It reveals the secret that the season 5 premiere tried to cover up too early. And of course, I feel like this reveal should have been held until the end of the season 5 premiere. Mm. They, they kind of overplayed their hand a bit. Yeah, a little bit. And you know, of course, the season's not over because we have the post credit scene. It's basically a chunk that was later reused for the season 5 premiere because we have a lot of production stuff to talk about season 5 when that gets there. <sighs> Let's just say that it, that it had one of the most troubled passes of the past like a process of the series really basically the scene shows crow in a bar for some reason i guess it's a teaser for the next season and oscar arrives at the bar just seemingly showing up out of nowhere i guess and crow says that you know kids aren't allowed in the bar oscar asks for his cane back and crow immediately clicks to what's going on it's good to see you again oz throws the cane, and it opens, because it would only open up for Ozpin. And, it, and of course, it, it does its job of you know, setting up, okay, this is the little crumb of things that Season 5 is going to be doing. But, you know, this episode was 90% good until, the, until you know, the final few minutes when they dropped the, uh, the secret bomb. Oh, but, what the f***, guys? But other, other, but other than that, my friends, the Season 4 finale is great. Yeah. I honestly really enjoyed it. Even though my opinion flip-flops from time to time, it closes off things as well as they possibly could have been. Yeah, totally. The fight with the Nekla V is honestly one of the best moments of not just the season, but the whole series. Absolutely. Like, course, like the fact the fight, it, the fight itself is just awesome to watch. Yeah, even though it was kind of a little bit slow with all the stopping and the talking a, a, a little bit, it was overall not too distracting. Right. It closes everybody's story off exactly where it needs to. I should probably go back to Yang's thing. She then comes to a crossroads roads it's your she then says you are in so much trouble when i find you hinting that she's going to be going to haven academy to find ruby that's not what happens we will tell you exactly what she does next season yeah and but 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 of course other than that aside from a few hiccups and a few slips and a big slip at the end the season four finale was so freaking excellent absolutely exemplified in possibly one of the best songs of the whole series home singing about how even though you have no idea where you're going in this life you will always be home when you're with your best friends or your family Absolutely. and i am most home on this podcast with y'all talking about things that make me feel so happy and safe because i realize that the older we get the more awful the world is and it's becoming more and more apparent to me every single day but even when i'm consumed by the darkness and reality of politics and religion and finance and expectations and, and rights and and, and, and and rights and all that i know i can always turn to my best of friends to keep me happy in the darkest of times absolutely so thank you christopher chase on hey it's not that i try my best here i gotta be that light in the end of the darkness right yep definitely but do i have anything funny to end the season on fact wise i do not so basically after 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 closing all that off 
I would very much say that the season four finale is a great episode. And before we give our final thoughts on the season overall, I'll give it a B plus. Yeah, and I'll give this episode an eight and a half. It's one of the better finales of the show. Oh, definitely. But yes. uh, of course, with that last bit, could have waited till the end of the season five premiere. But other than that, yeah. it was fine. I the, know. the fight was great. Getting to Haven is the best thing. I was setting up volume five. It's gonna be great. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe uh, we'll we'll get to that after we're done with Aquaman. Oh yeah, that's right. gonna be so, a fun thing. But yeah. the season overall, how do we feel? Do you want to go first? Well, I'll say this: like this is the first season where Monty has no involvement. Yeah, absolutely, and right. it definitely shows. Yeah, it does. But overall, it's not half bad. No, because like not. it shows promise. It, it has like there were scenes of it that felt like Monty could have done it exactly in the same way, or maybe better. And of course, there are a bit of problems with it. it yeah. It's not a perfect season. Like no, it's most not. fans have gone on record that some of the seasons without Monty, mainly seasons four and five, have kind of sloped down to not that great yeah, territory. Basically. Not awful, but just not great. Exactly. I volume four is fine, but again, I feel like there are a few things that can make it so much better. Yeah, I know. But overall. Some episodes are really good. Absolutely. Some are not. No. But there's no outright failure. The best no. thing I could say about Volume 4, the best way I can describe it is that it's a fine enough season that could use a bit of correcting. Exactly. That's really it, though. But if I had to watch it again, I wouldn't mind. Because yeah. I could sit through it fine. There's some good moments I love, moments I love to despise and rant on exactly. and love to riff on. But overall... It's a well-balanced season that is honestly a really good way to start off a new era. Well said, absolutely. Yeah, Mike, what about you? For me, I've th- I've been thinking a lot about this. And when, I, and when I first watched season four three years ago, I didn't really think it was anything special. I was honestly really surprised at how less interesting it was in the first three seasons. And after learning the history of the show, it made perfect sense why. After talking with many fans and learning that I wasn't alone in my feelings, it certainly made me feel a lot of validation. But the themes and concepts that season four tries to talk about, despite getting muddled in some really out-of-place humor, some really uh, very much higher-grade animation, but it does take away from what everyone expected from the series. Season four takes a lot of liberties. I should, I should you'll probably mention this right now, many have gone on record in saying that you know, even though Monty left behind so many things, and, he, and you know, he still received story credit for all the stuff that was happening, they were mostly going off their own ideas with taking his concepts. And, they, and, and you know, they do a lot of those concepts fairly well. If I'd have to break down the season by all the, like, like, like all the different sections. Team Ranger stuff was perfectly fine, and it carried the most story significance. Absolutely. Because you know, we had to learn about the exposition from them. They had the best fights. They basically had some of the most good humor, except, of course, most of the good humor went to Blake, if not for Ruby's group. Yeah. But, of course, it was a perfectly good season to still go sit through with Ruby's stuff. Weiss's story about getting away from her, her abusive family, while also knowing that there is always going to be stuff for her to come back if she ever chooses... She did choose her path. Her life is hers to decide, and she would not take it anymore. Yeah, honestly, I think that I think it's like the second best major arc of this season because it shows so. you that she's becoming her own and not just an heiress to a company that sells stick and dust that looks like crap. Exactly. Uh, Blake's uh, arc was a little bit confusing because my job's I've you know, gone on record saying Blake is my least favorite of the main four. So so her story is not that interesting and honestly it's only going to get worse as we uh, go into season five but as of season four 
It's perfectly serviceable with some really corny jokes and really and really decent fights. Right, right up there with the Sea Dragon fight in Episode 3 of Season 4. Oh, yeah. So I would say it is overall decent, had some really good comedy, whether it worked or not. Yang was basically sitting there at her home, talking to the Beacon Professors, training, training, you know, training with her father, dealing with her PTSD... A little bit, and then you're riding off into the sunset on like her motorcycle. Yeah. So I will go into much more detailed things in the future videos of Ruby, but I don't think they very much handled Yang's PTSD as well as they could because of how short the seasons are to only about three, three to three and a half hours. They oh, really, yeah. They really didn't have the time to cover all of the stuff they had to. They gave a very valiant effort, and they did a pretty decent job. Yeah. Oscar, they did a pretty good job of introducing him to the show, as well as the mystery of why Professor Osmond's spirits uh, you know, merged with his, which we'll get into a lot more in Season 5. Oh, so, yeah. I did like the farmlands of his you know, home. I like the train station. I really did like expanding on the locations of Mistral. Yeah. Honestly. The villains had some of the weakest stuff, honestly, because they were only in the season for about three episodes. Yeah, the- and this is their most their debut so you're kind of sweeping them under the rug here yeah. guys we basically sweeped emerald and mercury away mercury entirely uh mm-hmm. cinder doesn't say a single line in the season except for maybe a few grunts yeah and, because apparently ruby silver rise hurt her vocal cords so much i still don't understand that i still don't either man salem had a very good introduction even though it's not at her best yet but she will get better Oh, yeah. Trust me. Um, Watts was very hit or miss. He hasn't done anything. He'll get better. Yeah, he'll get better. We know he gets better, so don't worry. We did the most with Tyrion this season, and he made a heck of an impression. Yeah, because he... God, he's so creepy. He, he does, and he only gets creepier, folks, so if y'all like that, better be sure to stick around. Hazel also did basically nothing but except show that he's the big, tough guy. Yeah, they're saving him for Volume 5. Oh, yeah, we're going to be getting a lot more Hazel in Season 5, so trust us, we'll be talking a lot more about him then, so Julio, just know, big guy, very, very mysterious, that's it. Yep. I, I liked all the stuff extra that they did with Crow. I loved the, the theme of family and togetherness and moving on from tragedy. Season 4 is pretty good, and I would honestly go back to it at any heartbeat, my friends. Yeah. So thank you for sticking around with us for the fourth season. We will get to arguably one of one of our uh, not-too-better seasons of Ruby. Uh, it definitely shows! Oh, Chris, you, you, you have a lot to say about <sighs> Season 5 when we get to it? Yep! Okay, I'm going to try to keep my... Con- Composure, but I, I'm going to rant as much as I did for X-Men oh, and Wolverine. Def- that's, that's definitely going to be very fun. But before that, we have to go back to the DC Universe for the DC Extended Universe film, Aquaman 2018, as our next video. Oh, yeah, that'll be fun. But that's for next time. Until yep. that, This has been Behind the Screen. So until next time, I'm Chris. I'm Mike. We thank you all for listening. Have yourselves a great night, and take care. Keep fighting huntresses and huntsmen. Move forward, I guess. Goodbye. <laughs>